In the holy name of Jesus, amen. Every one of you has had some sort of crisis of faith. Throughout your life, you've gone along, things seem to be normal, and then all of a sudden you're thrown a curveball, you're thrown a slider, you're not exactly sure what's going on. Life takes a sudden left or right turn, and all of a sudden you realize things are going pretty bad. If you look out throughout our Old Testament, you can see that even those people who are found in our Sunday school lessons had their really bad days. They struggled with the crisis of faith, just like us. This is what we hear about in our Old Testament reading today from Exodus chapter 33. The Israelites had just finished with their whole golden calf debacle, and now God is angry. Imagine for a moment. God's people treating his grace like garbage, preferring instead their own thing, their own worship of their own gods, and choosing what they desire. Some things have never changed, have they? God is so angry that he sends a plague upon the people, and as a consequence for their idolatry, he informs Moses that the Israelites need to leave Mount Sinai and head to the promised land. However, God says that he won't be traveling with them on his trip. He says, in a sense, I can't be amongst such sinfulness. My holy presence would kill these people, and he certainly doesn't want that. But all Moses hears is a great crisis of faith. God is abandoning them. God never says that at all, though, because God is always present with his people. But because of their evil ways, God will not be blessing them along the way. They will not know the blessing of God as they journey. Again, Moses ramps up the crisis of faith. You said that you would do all these things, and now you're going back. And over and over again, despite how many times God says that he will call him by name, Moses keeps asking for a sign. Give me some sort of proof that you love us, that you care for us, that you're sending us on the right path. Give us a sign or a proof that we know, Lord, that you haven't utterly abandoned us and brought us out here to die. And so amidst this, this crisis of faith, Moses says to God, show me your face. And God says that's not going to happen because no man may look upon me and my face and live. We as Christians certainly do think at times that God is the one who has abandoned us, that there is a crisis of faith. And so we aren't afraid at times to ask God for a sign, for some sort of proof. But here's the thing. Even in the midst of this crisis of faith with Moses, God has mercy. He deals gently with Moses, even as Moses is taking everything completely out of context with his misery and his suffering and despair. God says to him, I will show you my goodness and my mercy, but you can't ask what you're asking and live. So God places Moses in a safe place, in the cleft of a rock, and he covers his eyes until he passes by, and then once God has passed, Moses can see with his own hands God's backside. Doesn't seem like the most enthralling side of God, 
Moses doesn't get to physically behold the face of God, but God works even through his backside for Moses. And the reason why this is so merciful and so gracious is that because God had every right to completely wipe out Moses and all of the Israelites. Moses asks for a miracle, show me your face. He wants and demands a face-to-face with God in the midst of a crisis of faith. But all he gets instead is God's backside. God shows Moses the backside, which is still full of his goodness and his mercy, and that is the true miracle of God. Nothing has changed even for us today. God is still almighty and eternal and unchanging, And here we have seen him all throughout these several months showing his goodness and his mercy. We've been reminded of his birth in the manger as Almighty God takes on flesh and is wrapped in rags and laid in a manger, coming to humanity, not in wrath or vengeance, not in royal might and power, but in the humble form of a little baby lying in a manger. God backs in, literally, to earth for our salvation. We saw this today at the wedding at Cana. This wedding party is probably close family or friends of Jesus, and they run out of wine. This is a major faux pas. It doesn't get more embarrassing or shameful than that. And Mary looks at Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Literally, this is sort of a crisis of faith. We may not think of it that way. But she says to her son, do something about it. And this is where Jesus speaks very calmly to Mary, not as her son, but as this word of God made flesh. He uses this opportunity to teach Mary and to teach us. You heard it today. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now here's one example where our English Bibles truly get this messed up. Jesus does not say, woman, what does this have to do with me? That's a very poor translation. In the original, Jesus says to his mother, what to you and to me? What to you and to me? I know that doesn't really roll off your tongue very well, but he says to Mary, what to you and to me? This is an amazing statement, amazing question that Jesus says to Mary. What Jesus is saying to Mary is very simpler, simple. This crisis of faith, this problem that you have, this is an issue that only God can handle. How does a solution, Mary, handle with you and me together? You can't do anything about this. Only God can. What do you have to do with this remedy of this crisis of faith, this God issue? What can you contribute, Mary? This is not a problem that can be solved by going down to the store and buying more wine or any other kind of help from mankind. This is a problem only God can solve. This is a problem that only can be solved by him and him alone. This is not Mary and Jesus together. She has nothing to do with this. Jesus is literally saying to Mary, I am the only one who can handle this, not you. Think about that statement in your life right now. What to you and to me? 
Think about all the questions and the problems, all the crisis of faith that you might be having right now. And Jesus utters those same words for us today. Not to make you feel tiny and puny in his sight, not to make you feel irrelevant, but to remind us that in the midst of all of our crises of faith, God is still merciful and gracious to us. What to you and to me? As Luther says in very many ways, that when we face these crises of faith, when we get on our knees and pray, we are to pray and let God worry about the problem. What to you and to me? And you know the rest of the story. Jesus works his first miracle, the first sign and proof, in order to reveal his divine majesty and power. That all sounds big, grand, and glorious. But you'll notice here that Jesus doesn't do big, grand, and glorious things. He doesn't rend the heavens open. The earth doesn't quake. The sun doesn't go dark. There aren't heavenly war trumpets. There isn't a magical vine that comes down from heaven. There isn't a waterfall of wine flowing out of the clouds. He doesn't even call attention to himself. He goes to the quiet servants and simply says to fill up the jars with water. He commands a lowly servant by his almighty and powerful word to accomplish his purpose for this crisis. Many of the people at the feast don't even know what's going on. In fact, many looked at this and say, hey, you've saved the best for last. But Jesus shows us that he has come along to take out the old ways and to bring in the new ways of his kingdom. The Jewish washing and purification ritual was a way of the old ways. He has come to bring along joy and the wine of gladness in his gospel. In the midst of all of this, the disciples believe. And soon... We're going to be entering into the season of Lent. It's a month away. It's right on the heels of Epiphany and Christmas. And that is where we will focus on Jesus as he goes to the cross. And I beg of you that each time that you see Jesus on the cross, think of that question that he gave to Mary. What to you and to me? We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves no matter how good our intentions are, no matter how we hard we try. We can't even save ourselves from a common cold. If we could make any kind of payment for our sins, then Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross. But he did. And even from the cross, he looks to you and to me and says, what to you and to me? For him, it's taking on our sin, our death, our punishment. For us, it's giving us life, eternal salvation, and hope, even in the midst of the crises of faith. This is Almighty God doing something about our sin, although it's in a very backsided and unassuming way. People look at the cross and they say it's foolishness. It doesn't mean to make any sense. It's the weakness of Jesus. But here on the cross is God unveiling for us his divine eternal love for you and for me, his plan, his hope, his life for you, even in the midst of all of the crises we face. It is God's immeasurable and incomprehensible love for you. Here is victory on the cross. Here is life. And it is only where God himself has provided that is found in Jesus on the cross. We may look at all of our issues and say we have many, many big problems that are only handled by God. 
But here is the answer in all of these things. We can't solve it ourselves. The answer is not found in stimulus checks and vaccines and masks and arbitrary distances and hand sanitizing. The answer certainly isn't found in the golden donkeys and the golden elephants in Washington who really do want to make themselves out to be your empty saviors. The answer to our biggest problems, our crisis of faith, is staring at us in your face. Jesus on the cross. Even though the fullness of God is veiled, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. You get to look at the face of God without dying as Jesus gives up his life for you so that you may live. And despite all of our sinfulness, he continues to show mercy and goodness. Despite all of our pride and our stubbornness, despite all of our demands that we ask of God, he shows us his mercy and his goodness and his love and his grace. And he continues to back in to his creation, speaking to us words of comfort and peace, to give himself in ways and means that are not meant to destroy us, but are meant to draw us closer to him. He comes through his word, and today he comes through this meal today. And as you receive this wondrous meal today, you receive it not only for the forgiveness of sins, but for the strengthening of faith. Think about that for a moment. This is the bread of life that has come down from heaven, Christ's flesh and blood given and shed for you for forgiveness, but also to strengthen you in the darkest and most mundane and depressing and downright scariest of times. Here is where he meets you in your crises of faith to feed you, to nourish you, to give you refreshment as you thirst. Here is where he feeds you with himself and reminds you that he is with you always, even to the very end of this age. Don't overlook what it is that he has done miraculously for you this day in releasing you of all of your sins, forgiving you freely, forgetting of these sins, but then also inviting you to a foretaste of that wedding feast that is to come. The wedding feast where all of our loved ones have gone on before us and are now seated the wedding feast that we have been promised to go and be a part of because Christ has come for you. God keeps his promises. He abides with you even as we go through the valley of this dark shadow of death and sin and despair. Regardless of what the world might say or what's going on around us, we look at the most important thing for us here today, the glory of God in your midst to reveal Jesus to you and all of his promises and his purpose for coming for you. That he may promise that you are with him and he is with you. What to you and to me? That's what he says as he leave this place. That simple little phrase he said to Mary, he repeats to you. That no matter what we face, what to you and to me, Jesus is truly in control you have his promise on it, and his mercy and love endure for you now and forever. To Christ alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>